welcome to episode number 43 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here in National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Not every story we tell can be about land management. Today, we're taking a long flight to Siberia with National Land President Aaron Graham to hunt a bear. Aaron Graham has captained a national champion college football team, played in the NFL, and co-founded one of the most successful land companies in the United States. He also took the trip of a lifetime, escaped death, and hunted Siberian brown bear. For those listeners who enjoy tales of hunting, we're about to go on one heck of an adventure. Now sit back and enjoy. I am sitting with Aaron Graham. Aaron Graham is the president of National Land. It's the umbrella company for National Land Realty. Uh, Aaron comes to us from Nebraska. And for those of you that don't know the name, um, we're talking about an individual that uh, if you crack open the 1994 edition of Sports Illustrated for the National Championship Nebraska Cornhuskers, you will find this man standing there on the cover as a champion and the captain of that team who went on to be an offensive lineman for the Tennessee Titans and Oakland Raiders. Uh, he is now president of national land realty. And Aaron, tell me a little bit, you know, you're one of the founding members. Tell, tell me a little bit how you arrived and sort of, um, you know, you went through the Cabela's route. Uh, just give us a brief sort of, you know, how did you get here? Yeah. So, you know, got into the land business right after I retired from the NFL and uh, found uh, a guy in western part of Nebraska by the name of Mike Lashley, who was a recreational land broker and uh, was visiting with him about um, a piece of property I was looking to buy on the Platte River and was fascinated by his career. And um, he basically uh, encouraged me to get with him when I was done playing. And I had a real estate license, obtained a real estate license while I was playing in the NFL. And I called him on the plane ride home uh, when the Tennessee Titans um, doctor had pushed me to retirement, said 11 knee surgeries, 31 years old. You played long enough, made some good money, you know, go do something else. And I was excited for the next chapter, called up Mike Lashley. And he said, well, you know, that when you talk to me, I just spoken with Jim Cabela and they were interested in starting a uh, real estate marketing branch of Cabela's World's Foremost Outfitters. And uh, long story short, I became the first uh, agent, didn't have a broker's license at that time, but I was the first agent that signed up with Cabela's. And we rode that train party for about nine years. Uh, it was a wonderful experience, um, got really um, well rooted, I'd say in the land business, which I had zero experience. And that opportunity led me to, uh, along that, that path of creating my own, uh, brokerage and built some pretty amazing technologies. And in March of 2015, met my business partner, Jason Walter at a realtors land Institute conference. And it was, uh, as he said, one plus one equals three. If he's ever seen it, he had the data. I had the tech and uh, decided that day that we were going to merge our companies together. Nine months later, um, my company, Land Pros Realty, uh, merged with National Land 
and uh, started combined with 40, 50 agents. And as you're well aware, you know, we've grown it to over 400 and 96 offices and, you know, 43 states. And it's just been, it's been a wonderful ride. The land business has been very good to, to uh, many of us. And and not just that you, you've got some you got some fame brewing in the family as well. Your son is is the rising country star Cooper James. He is. Oh, he's doing really well. You know, I'm not letting him get too much to his head. He's only 23, but he's uh, <laughs> he's making a go at it, and his mother and I support him a thousand percent. And he's getting ready to make the move to Nashville, and he's a country music singer. And um, if you looked at him, you think he was a left tackle for you know some offensive for some uh, professional football team he's gigantic he's like what is he like nine feet tall (laughs) yeah he's like six six probably 350 and he's a big kid uh but he's can sing and he can play and he writes and he produces and uh he's one of those talents that you know um people are excited to, to i think to be able to potentially grab him and develop him um and see where they can take him so yeah we're excited cooper james and you can find him on all of the the streaming musics and I uh, on uh, what is it Apple Spotify Music and, and, yeah, yeah. All, so yeah. well and I've heard it I I I dig his music quite a bit I follow his page too um, but outside of this all the successes you've had and uh, starting this company being one of the founders we're here to talk about a bear hunt. Are you sure you want to? <laughs> I absolutely. So, so this is a story. You told me this story when I first started at National Land because you saw that I had a bear skull behind me on my Zoom, which I have now. And I finally got the bear rug. Um, oh, nice. And, and I was I was all excited about doing a backcountry hunt, spotting, stalking a bear and then packing it down on my back. And I felt really awesome about that. And you started telling me about hunting bears in Siberia. <laughs> and I felt I felt like I had like a stuffed puppy behind me. It was one of those, like my story is really not that cool. Um, <laughs> so, so when I was looking at, at like sort of how to grow stories with the podcast and we've talked a lot about land and, and I realized that hunting bear in Siberia is really not necessarily like a land topic, but it is outdoors and it is chances are, if you're going to enjoy something like a ranch, if you're going to enjoy something like a recreational hunting property, you're going to enjoy this story. <laughs> um, so I wanted to like, I wanted you to tell the story of your Siberian bear hunt and I'm going to be along for the ride too. Uh, well, so, I love telling the story. I, you know, it, it's one of those memories that um, will never escape me because it was so much uh of the highs and lows and the craziness of just going to a foreign country. But, you know, if I would have come home empty handed, it may have been a different story, but, um, you know, um, one of the guys that I went with just as a little side note, he said, you know, I was really nervous about paying that much money to go over, uh, to Russia to shoot a bear. And he said, Aaron, I guarantee you that bear will make you a hundred grand. And the bear can make way more than that in full full disclosure because it's it's like when the, when I meet people and they're like yeah well you know I shot a grizzly on Kodiak and I'm like mm, it's a it's a good starter hunt you know, <laughs> get, get a drop off and 
helicopter that, you know, you, you feel like you're going to crash in and then have them pick you up a couple of weeks later and have no communication and, uh, you know, trying to communicate with a guide who doesn't speak English. And, uh, so, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I'll tell you, go ahead. Uh, How do you, so, okay. Mm-hmm. Sitting around, it, I'm assuming you live in Nebraska at the time. I was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where, where does this come from? Where do you say I want to fly to Russia and hunt a bear? So, I was part of a Jack Nicholas golf course that got developed here in Nebraska called the Dismore River Club, and there was one guy in particular who was running it, and um, he was Jack Nicholas's right hand land guy, which was kind of unique. Which I I was kind of gravitating towards him because this guy had done some really incredible, you know, land deals throughout his career. And uh, he had hunted. He didn't get married till I believe he was in maybe forty years old or older. Um, literally sold real estate. Uh, was a financial advisor. Um, really sharp guy, but would spend his time going on all these exotic hunting trips um, as a bachelor. And and it, it, like I was just telling you, it, like I heard so many of them, and I I was I was wired that way. But at the time, you know, I'd already had, had three children, married, um, you know, already been married for uh, see ten years, I guess. And uh, but it was exciting. It was exciting to to think like that. And so he and I, and one of the owners of the dismal went to the Safari club international show. And it was in Reno at that time. And amazing. If if you haven't ever been to one of those, that's there's the shot show. And then of course, SCI, Uh, but it's just booth after booth of all these amazing places you can hunt and all kinds of guns and stuff. Well, there was a guy who was, um, they're representing hunts from Kamchatka, Alaska, or, or Russia. And immediately my buddy Dick, um, the, the uh, land guy said, let's go. I'm like, no, he's out of your mind. He goes, why not? <laughs> you know, he's like, he's not going to take no. And so he walks over and starts talking to the guy and he's like, yeah, well you can put in, it's a $2,500 deposit. I think if you get drawn, there's like 25 tags in the whole world that you get to go. And, you know, if you don't hear from us in three years, we'll give your money back or whatever else. So he's like, come on, open up your pocketbook. Let's go do it. So sure enough, I come back from SCI and tell my wife that I put a deposit in on a bear hunting trip in Russia. I don't know if it doesn't sound I was just going to ask you about how this part went down. Like, is this one of those, like, you ask for forgiveness before you ask for permission kind of things? So when I was at the latter part of my career in the NFL, it's a great <laughs> question because you know, I'm climbing into bed and I'm telling my wife, cause she's, she's, you know, everybody's just like, Oh, you know, you can play. Why didn't you play 15 years? I'm like, well, there's a reason why if you play three years, they give you all of the benefits, you know, um, because it's really, really hard to play a long time in the NFL. And my last few years climbing into bed, I'm telling her, I'm just telling you, I love the game. I don't know how long I can do this. I mean, ice bags on my knees to you name it. And it's a very, very tough hospital. But I said, and I, and I also include and say, but I can tell you this, when I'm done playing, I'm going to go hunting and I'm, I don't want to ask for permission. I'm going to support and be with it, but I'm going to do some stuff because I, it's in my, and I couldn't do it for. Right. Right. You know, I, was a kid and I hunted all through it, hunted in the pros even. 
but nothing like I wanted. I wanted to go to Alaska. I wanted to go all over and and have these hunts. So she knew it. And so uh, it was kind of part of the package deal. Like I'm going to keep playing pro football, but I'm also going to, if I have an opportunity, I'm going to go do this stuff. And uh, so, you know, what happened was I think that show was in January and we got a call in March that said, congratulations, you are, you were in like a group tag. So one of us got drawn. So all three of us were eligible to go. And I'm like, what? Within three months. This is in, and, and this was in March and the hunt was in the middle part of April. So, so it was, this is just go. Oh yeah. And I'm, I'm telling, telling, do you even have, do you even have boots at this point? Like I have nothing. I have nothing. (laughs) I don't even have uh, you know, a caliber gun that I would feel comfortable shooting a, you know, a nine, 10 foot Brown bear, you know, with, and uh, so I told Dick, I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I might just forfeit my deposit. And he's like, oh my gosh, you big weenie. You got to go in and and keep in mind, I'm mid thirties. Maybe he's 60 something. And (laughs) Uh, and you can't let the gravy call you out like that. You're not backing out now, and and so I said, all right. So of course they they wanted full payment immediately. I was like, going, well, how smart is this, right? So I'm booking a bear trip to Russia, and of course the next thing is uh, we're online trying to find flights. Well, there's no flights. There's no flights. They shut them off from going. There were some that were going westerly from the u.s to get over maybe to sydney or something crazy but it's you know like i always think of the sarah palin comment that she said you can see russia from my backyard i don't know if you remember that well that's where we're going right it was down it's like the siberian sea and the bering sea i guess and then the siberian strait and then it goes down on the far easterly side of russia and it makes a peninsula very similar to florida and so it's only, you know, as a crow flies, maybe four hours from Anchorage, you know, or something like that by flight. Right. So um, we had to go all the way around the world and it took uh, 62 hours to get there. And um, oh my God. I almost missed my flight. I did miss, I missed my flight coming out of Omaha, got in my truck, uh, woke up. Um, I had my alarm set for, for uh, 5 a.m., I woke up at like 6, and I'm like, I can't get there. I, I booked a flight, changed my flight to Kansas City, drove 90 miles an hour to Kansas City, got on the flight, <clears throat> and met my buddies in Atlanta. And I was a sweaty mess and just like freaking out. I had to check guns. I mean, it was crazy. So we get there, and so the flight path was originally going to be Omaha, Atlanta, Atlanta, Moscow, Moscow, Petropavlos, Nine and a half hour bus ride, then get in a uh, Sikorsky helicopter and drop you off. So it, it uh, the part of the trip actually involved taking a helicopter into the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. And before that, so what what I like to tell what I want people to know because it's the, the experience, and unless you physically get to experience it and understand when people talk about things like you know Russia and such. I, I tell them this, look, the, the flight from Atlanta to Moscow was 12 and a half hours. The flight from Moscow to Petropavlos, same country, was 12 hours. We never flew off of Russia. Because it's a big time. country. It's gigantic. Like it's, <laughs> you know, you can go from New York to LA and back in that time period, right? So it's a gigantic country. So we go to Moscow, 
Um, and we get to, um, I got to tell us this. So we get to the baggage claim and there's nobody with us. So now we have to be able to get in through, um, uh, what do you call it? When you're checking in from the, um, from a visiting country. Oh, uh, customs. Yeah. So to get in through their customs and anyway, so the, the pH, the personal handler, this is what they call him, who is, is going to help you. He's not meeting us until we get to Petropavlos. So we're in Russia and he sends us an, an email before we left and he said, go to the baggage claim and there will be a gentleman to meet you there. Um, and so we went to the baggage claim and we're looking around, swear to goodness, it looked like it was straight out of 1970. People were smoking in the, in the, and uh, in the airport, the old baggage claims clanking around. I'm like, are they going to put our guns out here? I mean, I don't know. It's going to work, you know? And so we're looking around we're like, well, we, nobody speaks English, English, nobody. And right. so we're looking around and I see this guy in this leather brown coat and he's, he's looking at me and he's smoking a cigarette. He's got a mustache. And he looks at me and I look at him and, and the two guys that were with weren't paying attention. And he kind of gives me a head nod. And anyway, I walk over to him. He said, you hunt bear. And I said, yes. <laughs> and then he says this, now he says, follow me. Do not look at me. Do not make a contact with me. Follow me. And turns around and walks off. This sounds like a spy novel. Uh, and it's, this is what I'm saying. It's like the craziest thing, like the whole stories. And, and he turns and walks off. I go over to, to my two buddies and go, okay, that's our guy. He said, follow him. Do not look at him. Do not make eye contact with him, but follow him. This is like, this is the part where you get stabbed, right? Like this is, we're all walking somewhere to get like, stabbed right now. I just don't, you just don't know. I don't know how this works in Russia, you know? So we got our bags and um, we did have our guns. They, we got our guns with us and we are walking down this hallway and he literally kind of does one of these looks around and then dives into this door like this opens it up the side door and we go in there and I'm, I'm leading and my two old buddies are sitting behind me and I'm, I'm got my guns and looking, I'm looking in this little hallway, this uh, room that he goes into. And there's these two KGB looking dudes with a scanner and, and in the room, that's it. Like a, a baggage scanner, like at the airport. And he walks up there and he's like, and they're looking at him like, what the hell are you doing in here? Like, get the hell out of here. And he's like, hey, and I'm like, oh, and they, he talked to him for at least 10, 15 minutes. And we're standing there in the hallway going, doo -doo 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 -doo. and finally I see him go, he kind of makes this gesture and he's going, but he reaches in his wallet and he grabs his, his wallet out and he opens it up and the guys fold their arms kind of like, okay, you know, and they looked at him like, what do you got? So he grabs some rubles and he goes like this and immediately turns to us and goes and is waving us to come in. So we're, we're coming in He and he said, put your guns on the, on the uh, scanner, put your bags in there, take out all your ammo and put it into one bag. And we're going, God, this is crazy. So anyway, they go through, they scan us and, and we get through and they, sh they push us straight to the front of the line in the Moscow airport and we were flying business class for this next leg. And you could see the, the, one of the biggest memories was all the people just like it looked like a regular airport older, but it, this was Moscow. This wasn't like, you know, like it's a huge airport. Everybody's standing in line, single file, stoic. Nobody's saying a word. The line is probably 50, 75 people deep and nobody's saying anything. And they're looking They're just like, you could feel the presence of like, the former communist, you know, nation that they were part of. Nobody's getting out of line or whatever. And so 
we they put us at the front and here we are and we're gone. Okay. We go and we have to go through the security clearance again. And I get to the line to go through their scanners. Now this scanner is like, like the whole thing is amazing. Well, state of the art, everything. And there's this big Russian lady and she's, she's telling people blah, 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 and, and I can see there. She's telling them, take your shoes off, put them in. And you had to put on these booties. It had this blue light lit background, you know, it was just like, it was kind of high tech looking stuff. Well, this guy in front of me, um, he, he doesn't speak English, but she's telling him, and he's telling her, she's telling him to take his shoes off. Well, he's like, he's looking, I'm like, dude, take your shoes off. And she looks, she tells him one more time. I had no idea what she was saying, but she was like, take your shoes off and pointing at him. And he's like, blah, 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 blah. and the next thing you know, she's radioing. And here comes this big KGB looking dude. He comes over. He's like, hey, put your shoes in the conveyor and rushing and screaming. I'm like, holy cow. And the guy's like panicking, putting it on. I was like, running at this point. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So we get on the next flight and I'm like, oh, this is like, this is the first day through this whole process. And so we fly 12 hours to Petropavlos. We get off. Um, we met all the other hunters from around the world who were there. Um, we got onto a bus and this bus was just, wait, is this, okay. So this is before, after a helicopter, this is before. So we, this, this is before. So, okay. So you were going chronologically. I'm like, man, we can't miss the helicopter flight. Cause this sounds oh, yeah. weird. Yeah. So we flew all the way across Russia and we land in Petropavlos, Kamchatsky, Russia. And we look it up and, um, we, proceed to um they take us to a hotel um the rooms were like a jail cell they knew we learned very quickly that uh, we're like yes we need two rooms and they're like you american and they're like yeah well uh, 130 dollars and this like you wouldn't pay 50 bucks to for sure to sleep in this and, the, and so we learned real quick you know the, and there's no plan b so you gotta pay <laughs> the beds were six foot long i'm six foot four right it was just Whatever, we're like laughing, joking. Well, there was a casino across the street. Two things. There was a Brunswick Bowl next door. There, you couldn't tell. Everything was in Russian, but you could look at this building that was next to it and go, "Hey, that's a Brunswick bowling alley." And sure enough, we walk in there. Craziest part of it, we walk in there, and all the lanes are full. Everybody's smoking. You know, you can tell uh, people are drinking. They don't. They don't drink beer. They drink vodka, right? But you go up to the concession stand. We're hungry, and I go up to the concession stand. And everything's written in, in Russian. So you can't, no idea. I'm looking at whatever people, and I'm watching these kids go up there and get their food. They're getting like a bowl, a little paper bowl that would be like tomatoes, olives, fruit, and maybe a piece of bread. And the next people come up and I'm like, there's no junk food. There's, there's, you know, there's no crap. They don't get steak. They don't get anything in their life. Here's your, here's what you get. You get fruits and vegetables and a potato or whatever else. And it was just and, and just amazing watching how people and the, the men, the men go to work to support the wife and the wife is the one who is the public figure. And they all smoke, they all drink, but it's almost like this trade-off because they don't eat crap. They eat fish and they eat fruit and they eat green veggies. And that's right, what they right, right. So we went next door there because we had to stay there for a day and a half to be able to get to this. And then across the street was a casino that somebody told us in the hotel. Well, there was, it looked like this, you know, great uh, building, like a strip center. And of course you couldn't read anything, but you would not guess that this is a casino. This is like a strip mall. 
And then we walk in and sure enough, there's these guys in tuxedos and a couple ladies, you know, dressed up in, uh, in casino attire because they were working there and nobody else is in there. So we go in and we start playing blackjack, having some fun, whatever. I leave. I'm like, I'm going to bed, long day, whatever. I know we got more coming up. And so they were having some fun. Well, I wake up the next morning and Dick says, I said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, I walked out of there with 10 grand. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, at that point, the pH, everybody's going, you need to like protect yourself. Because he literally went in and won $10,000, you know? And, uh, and so... We're out of there. We're going, we get on the bus. All the other hunters across the world are going, didn't know these parts and what we were going to do because it really wasn't communicated. Are, are these all American half. hunters or these, are there language? They are, no, um, I don't believe there are any other American hunters. There was uh, a couple guys from France, a couple guys from two or three from Canada. Um, they were really from all over the world. We could, most of them spoke English. I was going to say most of those would speak English on some level, yeah. like France will speak English on some level, Canada definitely, obviously. But yeah. So here, we proceed to get in a bus and we start, you know, driving out of Petropavlos. And, and of course, this is like 2007. So, you know, we, your cell phone wasn't even an option and you couldn't really see what was going on around you because you'd love to have a Google map or something that kind of showed you. <laughs> yeah, the actual so map. We drove, Nine and a half hours. And by 30 minutes to an hour outside of Petropavlos, it was just like rock road. So in a, in a, like a, it, would, it would be the equivalent of like a charter bus, but it felt like it was probably 1970s and the seats were tiny and blah, blah, blah. So we um, drive. Like basically a gravel road, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I want to call it. Yeah. And the only thing you saw you really was Russian military equipment passing by. And, and so when people are like, you know, I think the United States has, what are we close to? 375 million, something like that. Maybe 350 million, I think now. And Russia is like 150, maybe not, they're not even 200 million. So it's half the population, three times the size of the country. And you either work in the, for the government and you're part of the military or you're doing whatever. I don't even know. So all you saw, you saw a few cars, but you literally outside of our hotel in Petropavlos, you would see tanks. You would see all these, you know, armored vehicles just constantly just going up and down the road. Like, Where are they doing? Where are they going? You know? And so that's the only thing we saw for a night. We, we got to the top of this mountain and just real quick about it. This, this, we stayed in a town. I couldn't tell you the name of the town, but it was built around a hot spring. And so there were probably, I'm going to guess, 500 people that lived in this village up in the mountains of Kamchatka. And we stayed with a husband and wife and we had an interpreter with us. And I asked the interpreter, I was fascinated. They said, we're going to sit down for, for a meal in this, in this house. And they would pump the heated water from the hot springs and pipes through their house. And that's how they kept it warm. It's geothermic heat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they're, of course they've been there for like 500 years, you know, like it's crazy the, how long people have been in that, in that area. But we stayed there and we sat around the table and I asked, uh, the interpreter said, I'm curious. I said, I want to ask the gentleman how old he is. And he said, I'm, he said, I'm 70 in Russian. And I was like, no way. I mean, he looked, didn't look a day over 55. Oh, right? okay. I was, yeah, you don't know because, you know, you get the hardworking societies, you age a little quicker, but yeah. Yeah. And he looked incredible. And I'm telling you, the reason why is because they have their greenhouse in their backyard 
which is very rare, right? But they don't have the community. There's more to that. But so they grew their own food. And uh, I asked him, so what did he do for a living? And, and what does he do for a living? He said, uh, the interpreter said he's retired. He used to be a, a coal miner. And I said, a coal miner. Okay. So I said, so what was that like? I mean, what was, what was your day like? And he didn't really have much to say. I said, so did you have like, did you have weekends off? And he looked at her like, or when, when I asked it and he's like, no, we, no, there's no weekends off. No, it's like, cause I was asking a question like, you know, I just was curious. And he's like, no, there, there weren't days off. Like there, it's we every, were day. every day. And he was like, you know, it sounded like seven to seven. And that is why when people came home, all they did was drink vodka, you know, smoke cigarettes and, that, and that was the next, what they got up for every day. I'm, and I was just, I'm like, here I am, I'm inquisitive. I'm, I want to know this stuff because here you are in an opportunity. Like, what's it like in another country? They live in this paradise up in the mountains, right? But it's like, yeah, no, we, we don't get that privilege that you guys do. Yeah, we're spoiled. Yeah. yeah. So so the next morning we, we load up um, on a helicopter. I have no idea how old it was. I would guess uh, probably at least 30, if not 40 years old. There's I a hand crank up front that you got to get the, get the engine going and everything. <laughs> and so we jump in and we're sitting kind of on the, on the exterior of the, of the cab, if you will. So our backs are to the windows, right? And there's probably 12 of us on this helicopter. I was, I was just going to ask how many were on it. So this is a large yeah. helicopter. Right. So the guy at this point was a younger guy, say mid to late twenties, and he spoke very good English. And he was kind of the, the lead saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to load up here. When they start the, uh, the engines, we are going to be moving quickly. And he was helping us because they don't, they don't talk much about this, but he was basically saying it's very, very expensive to get fuel here. So there's not going to be any messing around. And we're going to, so we get in, they start the motors. We got earplugs in. And the, the guy I'm telling you about, I was talking to us, was standing with his back to the two pilots. And he goes, okay, we good? Okay. And he turns around, he puts his hands on both the pilot's shoulders. He says, let's go. And he turned around and we're up in the air. And so instantly we're, we're up and then there's no FAA. There's none of that stuff. So this helicopter to maximize fuel capacity was just skimming the mountains, just going every, everywhere he could to create, to stop from getting too high. I don't know all the reasons. So we're going about an hour now. Okay. You're in a video game at this point, dodging mountains and trees. I'm just like, for the last three days, my mind is blown everywhere. And so now we're, we're, we're an hour in and the helicopter starts tilting and starts circling. And you can look out the, the but you couldn't really talk to each other because it was so loud. And I'm looking, you could see there was a, a dome tent down there and it was, it was pretty heavily timbered and there were there were uh, uh, snow machine trails or tracks that were around there. And anyway, the, the circle around what he was looking for was a landing spot. So when he circled and he came and he landed, as soon as he started to come down, that guy said, Oh, get, he goes, get ready. You, you, you. And it wasn't us. It was other guys. Get ready to go. They knew exactly where their bags were. The door came open. They took their gear. They threw it out the door and like literally shoveling the guys, go, 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 go. As soon as the last guy hit thing comes up, boom, we're going, we're back in the air. I'm going, holy crap. Like, are we next or what are we doing? So they drop off three different groups, right? And we're the last group. And I remember them circling around. I'm going, hey, well, we got a little log cabin down there. So, I mean, like a little log shack. And there were two dome tents. 
and uh, a lot more sparse. We were up higher in the mountains. Well, come to find out, we landed at about, I don't know, 10,000 feet. And I, I mean, it was something crazy, but you probably shouldn't be. You're up there. After that high. You know, I don't know enough about that. But but so they drop us off, and I'll never forget, they threw us, threw our stuff out, got our stuff. There's some couple of, you know, people, uh, uh, guides and stuff that are standing by the cabin, don't speak English. And then we had the interpreter with us, though, for our for that part of our trip, which was which was nice. And the helicopter takes off, and I've videoed virtually everything that I've told you so far, every part of it. I can show you like a video. And and Dick turns to me and goes, Well, there's no turning back now. I'm like, <laughs> and when the helicopter left, I'm like, holy crap, we are literally in the middle of Russia by Siberia. And like, you know, we're here. We're not going anywhere. Nobody knows where the body is. <laughs> no. So we we get in and uh there's a lot of kind of uh, a fun stuff I can kind of I'll skip, but the meeting the guys, they were young. They were, uh, I should say two of them were probably about 30. Um, I mean, real Russian bear hunting men. And uh, there was a guide native who was probably 70. And um, there was a, uh, a cook who was probably 25, 30 years old, little guy. And there was another helper that was there. And, um, so, you know, we sat down and the interpreter helped us for a little bit, but we, we went back into the, to the cabin and we're, it's small, small little cabin. And, uh, this, this guy who his name was Alexia, like every third person's name was Alexia and, uh, Alexia, however they say it. And, and anyway, he said, you, you work. And I was like, I, what? And I said, you work. I said, vodka? And he said, vodka. And I was like, vodka? He goes, no, vodka. And I was like, yeah. And he's going, yes, vodka. And I said, yeah, sure. Well, I've, you know, we're in Russian bear camp. So we looked at our buddies and they turn around and they go through this. He, he looked and he looked at all three of his buddies, those guys, and they kind of, you know, like looking at us like, you know, they're going to drink Russian vodka. And so I didn't know what we were getting into. And so he goes, he goes in, he reaches under the table and he grabs this bottle. And first of all, he grabs this tray and the tray has olives and lemons or uh, oranges and these fruits and stuff on it. And he's, and everything's ceremonial, right? He's taking his time. Then he takes these little shot glasses and then he proceeds to pour. I'm like going, all right. So this, this is on. <laughs> and then he's like, and, and I go to drink it. I raise it up and I'm like, no, 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 no. He's like, he looks at his buddy, he's like, wait, 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 and he starts toasting. We toast for like five minutes and they're saying something, whatever. And then he looks at me, he's like, you know, gives me the okay. So I'm like, all right. So we turn it up. And then they looked at me and they they just started going, <laughs> like laughing and looking at me, like, what did you know what you just drank? Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is insane, right? By the way, he poured that out of a what almost like a two-liter water bottle. Like it wasn't in a bottle, like bottle. And uh, so you, you it, just it, drink a shot of gasoline. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just <laughs> definitely like home for a minute. Like, what are they doing? Going to the Russia vodka grocery store up there? I mean, and uh, so that was our first night. We get up the next day, slept in the, these Russian dome tents with a little, a little uh, uh, barrel heater that was, you know, a third of a barrel. And it was awesome. Slept on. Um, a stick bed with caribou hides on it and 
It's great. I mean, I honestly, I was like, that's seriously like our cot thing. Like it was a, it was like little bitty tiny sticks all placed together up off the ground. And, uh, that's what you slept on. So we get up the next day and get dressed and so I guess we're going bear hunting right here. Jump on. He's got his Russian snow machine and it's got this handmade sled that he's pulling behind this thing. And, but his rush, his snow machine's at least 30 years old. Right. And so this, this, like a, this is like a 1970s model snowmobile. Yeah. You're crazy. You would totally go, that's a Russian snowmobile. Right. And so we start going and I'm like, and I, I mean, I'm literally sitting in this, they had like an old, like Jeep seat was the only thing that was um, not a real natural part, if you will. Everything else was sticks and whatever else. So I'm are you on. sitting on the sled or are you sitting behind? I'm the in the sled. I'm you're in, in the sled. You're like you know, in mean, a red wagon behind the yeah, oh yeah. I got the park on. I got, you know, I got the goggles, you know, and you're literally riding in there and you're just and, cargo. You're just I'm just like, okay, here we go. So we were we were less than a mile from camp and he's driving this snow machine, you know, and I'm sitting there back there going, Man, this is just so cool watching, you know, looking around and I don't, you know, don't know what you're gonna see. I'm like, is this bear area here? What you know, because there's no no communication. Anyway, we're driving around. He, well, he makes this turn. We're going through the trees. And let's say, you know, I feel the sled kind of like start almost wanting to flip, right? So I'm like, well, crap, man. Am I supposed to like be balancing here? So he makes a turn the other way. And next thing I go, boom, here I am. I'm off the sled. And I'm in like at least thigh deep snow. And and I remember, going, oh, man, it's really well. I guess, okay, so whatever. And he turns around, he stops the sled. And he stands up and he turns around and he looks at me and he, he gives me this waves with his finger like, come on, big guy, hurry up. Come on, silly American. You know, back over know, here. I'm like, all right, homie, let's see. You know, you ain't going to tell me that again, right? Because I can just tell. He's like, if you're going to fall off the sled, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, if you, I didn't know you were like going to be making hairpin turns, you know, going through this stuff. So now I'm like, I'm not falling off again. Right? You know, so I would say on day one, I fell off at least 12 times. <laughs> Okay, and, uh, and and now it's on after the second one. You're like, okay, the third one. I'm not, like, this is getting. I just want to like illustrate. You got how tall? Are you six four, six four, six a six foot four, three hundred pound plus ex NFL lineman riding behind a 1970s snowmobile like a Red Rider wagon. Yeah, get pulled I'm on. Trying to stay there. on board. Yeah. And so. <laughs> We go and um, the sun, because it's just like Alaska, the days were very long. Um, the nights were short. You know, the sun was hot. The sun was, uh, light was visible, I should say, till at least 10, 1030 at night. And we went from that morning and got back at probably 9, 10 p.m. Uh, maybe a little earlier that day, eight, eight o'clock or so. So we were we were hunting and I'm on the, I don't know how many, if I was guessing, I'd say we covered probably 40 to 50 miles. Okay. Is, now, this, is this all like road? Like, so when you say hunting in thigh deep snow, you're not out like hiking around. You're just riding around in the we snowmobile, hoping spotting. this guy sees something. We were, we were spotting. And of course that first day we didn't even do much of it. He was just looking. I mean, it was more like I'm, we're on this, you know, I'm, I'm just getting towed around the sled up in the mountains. Okay. Now you being a skier, you can totally relate to this. Okay. So we got above the timber line. Okay. Um, and there was a time on the second day where 
we were going along and I, I would say we're probably 11,000 feet. Okay. And 11, maybe even more than that. Some, in some cases we were even way higher, but we're, we're going along and I see him looking down where he's, he's, I could tell he's trying to get somewhere to the other side of the mountain or something, but there's no trails. This isn't Colorado skiing, you know, whatever. It's like, you're making your own path. And he's looking and he keeps looking, you know, down. I'm like, well, why is he looking down? I'm sitting here just worried about holding on and not getting thrown off. And then all of a sudden, for the first time in two days, I see that he hits the brake, the brake light, and he turns, and we're going straight down, nothing less than a black diamond ski slope. Okay. And I'm like, what the hell? I mean, we're we're next thing you know, we go from zero to 30, 30 plus miles an hour. Just and this is how down. I die in Russia. <laughs> so I see him, he's, he's got the bracelet hit and, and you have to balance his snow machine is one of those, when he had to turn left, he would put both feet on one side and flip his feet onto the other side to turn the other way. And I see him, he stands up, he turns, let's go with the handlebars, turns around, looks at me and jumps off. And so I look at him and as soon as he did that, because my, I mean, you're a full senses now, like we're, we're not in control right here. He jumps, I turn around, boom, land straight on him. I look down, the snowmobile is doing cartwheels with the sled. He okay. ran the snowmobile off a mountainside. Yes. Okay. So now <laughs> the next thing I know, we, we were in powdery snow, whatever, and I'm doing the system check. I'm like, okay, I'm good. And all, all I hear is this, oh, 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 and I'm going, oh, no. And I look and he's grabbing his wrist and I'm like, I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, you know, he's, and he's just, you know, mad, whatever else. And he keeps grabbing his wrist. I'm like, oh, great. Now, if he can't drive this, plus, first of all, I don't know how the hell, and I swear we are 30 miles from camp. Okay. And we get down there. Go hop on the phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just Yeah, exactly. No, there was no phone. There was nothing. It was like, like the whole time after this event, it was kind of like, I, I never lost my bearings because going up in a mountain timber, you know, whatever, like I had to know what way was approximately back. You can pinpoint mountain peaks and Nikki yeah, can something you to coordinate yourself. Over there. Yeah. So I have to walk. That's what I'm So anyway, I, we, he gets up and he's just, he starts walking down the mountain. He's grabbing his wrist when we get up to the snow machine and it's literally upside down and it's T-bone. And he goes, he looks at me and goes, mm. he's like, lift i go i mean we're yeah we're lifting we're gonna you know and we go over and he start we start to lift the snow machine and i was and i'm like i'm like well we gotta get this thing over so i'm doing full you know x nfl deadlift on this thing and it ain't budget and he's standing right and he's pulling too and i hear him go and he starts and next thing you know we start getting tilted finally i'm like as soon as we got to move and i couldn't let it come back down we get it pushed over and so he straightens up the sled, whatever. The windshield gone, hood gone, all disintegrated. And he starts pulling on the pull. There's no electric starter. It's a pull, you know. Yeah, yeah. And every time he pulls it, you know, he's like, pulls it and won't start. You know, he pulls it probably 14, 15 times. And on about the 15th, 16th time, it goes. And I'm like, oh, God, please. You know, like. And the next, he pulled one more time, and one more time was on. He looked at me and just gave me the get on, you know? And I'm like, holy crap. We get back to camp, okay, at like 10 o'clock. And we get there, and now Dick was like, how was your day? I said, well, I bet it wasn't as eventful as mine. He goes, I bet it was. 
I go, he's like, how many times did you get thrown off the sled? I said, at least 12. He goes, I guarantee I had, it was more for me. And anyway, Al, our other buddy who's older than Dick, is um, he's not as good a shape, but he had the, uh, the seven-year-old guy with him. And the uh, he was laughing at us, literally like, my guy, like, got off the sled and like helped me get across the, the all these things. And I'm like, I thought my guy was there literally trying to kill him. Right. And so we had this meeting that night and Dick in his, in his way that he is, the interpreter was there and he's like, we need to make it clear. We didn't come here to get killed. We came here to shoot a bear and the driving blah, blah, blah is ridiculous. And we need to do something about it. And they're like, all right, whatever. You know, like their responses. And I was just laughing, laughing, laughing. Okay, long story short from this part is like, so now we're in it. We're in Siberia. We're doing all this. But we are like, I don't know how excited I am about going tomorrow. Like, they almost died the first two days. And <laughs> we, we get back. Well, and, and I was going to ask, too. So you mentioned the elevation. It's not like they prepped you guys to go go okay. at elevation beforehand. Like you're all at risk for elevation sickness, possible edema, right? Like that's and there is all there real is risks. Not, there's not going to be any medicine. They're going to be pulling like but you're just going to die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we uh, we get back on the third day, and um, Al is not there. Like now, it's like I got in at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. And it's 10, 10, 30. Al's not there. Al's not back. Okay. So Alan was going across a wooden bridge, which we crossed several times. My guy just went floor over this thing. Like they built out of the same thing. My bed was made out of the cot. They built a bridge across one of the streams and they were going over the bridge and the bridge broke and Al flew off. And the guys kept shovels in the back of their snowmobiles because you, that's when you dig yourself out flew off, hits his ribs on the shovel, and is laying in the river. So his seven-year-old guide literally saves his life, gets him back. Al gets back to camp, broken ribs. Okay? And now we're like, oh, man, like this is... So Al was laughing at us because your guides are so, you know, you're like my guide's awesome, whatever. So... <clears throat> I have to tell you that because it's not just what, you know, what I was able to do. It's, it's how the story ends. So day, I guess day four it was or so we go out and um, we're looking and, and the bears are coming out of hibernation. So when you, you get to the top of the mountain, there's a picture. Maybe I can, I can send to you that you can see. It was a moment when, when my guide got off and he's sitting on the edge of this mountain, we are above the timberline, I'd say at least 12, 13,000 feet. And he's sitting on the edge and he's glassing and he's looking. And I was like, this is a Kodak moment if I've ever seen one. I take a picture. Well, I get up next to him. I grab my binos and I'm looking and he's pointing. He goes, good bear. It's the first thing, he, you know, only thing he said. And I'm looking and I go, yeah, that looks pretty good. And we're watching him and he's, he's going up the mountain and down the mountain. Like amazing, just watching. You know, we, you know, he's probably I don't know how far, long, long ways, but you can you can see him. He's he's he keeps uh, going up and down and getting deeper into the ravine. And he looks at me. He's like, you know, gives me the gun signal, and I grab my gun and we start walking down. So we walk down, and we're about a half mile down the mountain. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, that's a long ways back up to the. Going to go up the other direction. So what you're describing too is exactly the same process that I've gone through for hunting black bear 
for a spot in stock, like you go in the spring, you wait till they're coming out of hibernation and you sit on one ridge and you're watching the next ridge. And then you got to evaluate sort of like, okay, what's my return on investment here? Am I going to walk a thousand feet down and a thousand feet back? How is this going to go? So we get, now we're watching and we're stopping and we're looking and we see the bear keeps moving down the ravine and he keeps going up and he's just searching something. He's going up and he's going down and we give on. So now we're about a mile downhill from the snow machine and we're walking through this kind of dense, they, they weren't real tall pines. I don't know how to describe them. They were more like Austrian pine looking things, like uh, maybe 20 foot tall but bushier. And he turns to me and he goes, okay, shoot. And it's the, the second words of English I heard him say, and I'm like, shoot. I'm like, and I got my gun. I'm like, and at this point, I'm like, you know, I wasn't even thinking we we're going to see. And I turn and look and the bear is running straight up the hill at us. Okay. And, and I'm oh, literally like, there's, there's trees and you can hear him and you can see him running. Okay. But what I didn't know, it was the flight or fight instinct, but he didn't know. He just knew that he was either attacking or running and he comes running and he turns and he's about 50 yards from me going sideways. And I don't know if he's getting ready to turn to come right up at us and I shoot so the next thing I know, I'm like, I mean, the action, you know, you, all the excitement of being able to get there. And I'm, I didn't even need to look because I knew we were glassing and I knew he was he was at least a nine footer. And uh, and I'm looking, I shoot. And the next thing you know, I see the bear turn and my guide starts running down the mountain. The bear is going straight downhill and he's running down. Next thing you know, he, he's got his gun with him. This old Russian AK that he he carried with him. The barrel was like bent. I noticed it one one day. He's going pew 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 pew. And I'm like, well, what the hell? This guy's shooting at my bear now. And they did tell us they're like, if you shoot one, you know that's it. You know you're not you don't get to go for another one. So he shoots, and I remember he's still moving. At this point, I kick it into full gear, and I'm literally doing the bouncing down the mountain. And I see my guy, and I get in front of him, and I look, and I can see the bear going down down the ravine, and now he's coming up. Okay. And I, I literally put my gun on a tree branch and I'm looking and I'm going, dang, this is a long way. I'm going, this is a long way. And I, I put it on the top. He's going up the mountain and I put it on the back of his, of his head, the crosshairs and I shoot and boom, he, you could hear him let out this roar, like, Rah! you know, and he turns over and he's on the ground. He's flopping. And my guy, third words of English, good shot, 300 meter. And I'm like, well, dang, that's pretty amazing. I don't know how the hell we're going to get this thing, but I, I shot him, right? So we're standing there and we start, we're, you know, out of, completely out of breath. I mean, just, you know, very hard. You're running through snow. I mean, this is some of the hardest physical yeah. activities you can do running down a hill in snow. So, so we're laying there and we're looking, I'm sitting there watching, you know, I'm still seeing him. And we're starting to walk a little bit. And he turns to me and he goes, shoot again. And I look and the bear is back up on his feet and he's going up the mountain. I'm going, oh my gosh. I st I ran down a little bit more because there was some room to be able to gain advantage. He's going uphill and I gained some advantage. I put him in the crosshairs again and he is going up the mountain. And I'm like going, this is farther than the first one. So they always tell you, and you know this is a hunter, you don't ever want to put the crosshairs off the animal. Okay, because it's that's just an unfair shot. It's you know you're not even yeah yeah not very good. I put it above his head because I'm like this is longer than that one, 
and I shoot, boom, and he rolls again. Okay. And my guide turns to me and he goes, good shot, 400 meter. I literally, 375 H&H, right? Yeah. Now this don't like, you're like, man, but it's so we can get, and the bear is still rolling. He turns around and he, gra- he, he grabs a tree branch up above him to try to pull himself up. And he dies with his paw hooked to the tree branch. And he's just laying, he's standing there like this amazing. So now we're like, okay, we walked down, took us at least an hour and a half of, I mean, I got to a place where but you're putting up serious home. distance from your snowmobile at this point to get something to weigh. Like the snow machine is the furthest thing. Like I'm getting to the bear. I'm not sure what's going to happen then. And we get, we get up to him and it took us an hour and a half to cross that ravine and to walk up there. And I could take no more than maybe three steps and have to stop to catch your breath. I mean, it was every time you take a step, you just sink all the way down to your waist, you know, and you're trying to pull your snow, snowshoes and and we get up there. Keep in mind, I have my backpack. I have everything at the snow machine. Okay. I have my gun. He has his gun. We have nothing else. He does have his knife on. So we proceed to um, get to the bear and immediately we start skinning him. Right. And we're skinning him. And then the craziest thing is like for hunters that you can appreciate because my father-in-law of all people asked me, he said, when you skinned him, did he look like a human? And I was like, yes. bears. Bears are terrifying like that. Yes, it does. Yeah, really that big really ones, like, like 800 pounders. You should see what, you know, they're, and he's laying there on his back and all the skin is off. And I'm looking he at messes this. with you a little bit. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. Yes. Gigantic triceps. His chest is huge. He's got abs. He's got these little bitty short legs, not very much, but his upper body looked just like in the incredible Hulk. Right. So we're done. Covered in blood, he he took the time. He cut out the gallbladder. He cut out because they sell that to the Chinese, uh, Russian uh, Chinese market. You know, yeah. black yeah, for medicinal purposes. And he took all the stomach fat because the stomach fat from bears is their remedy to, to the flu. So they boil it down. So he made he had two plastic bags, with it, and they he had this bag of bear fat and like the gallbladder. I don't know if there was anything else that he, that he took. And you can render it for cooking oil too. It's really, really good cooking oil. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. And, uh, and then after all this, he turns to me and he goes, uh, he, he, he turns to me and he looks at the snow machine and he just walks off. I'm like, Hey, 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 let's I was like, I said, no, boom. I shot. I had, I had four, three, three shells in my gun. I'm out of, I'm out of, I don't have any ammo. Uh, I have nothing in, in, I was like, you know, no more bang bang. And he looks at me like you big wimp. He goes over, grabs some bark off this, this pine tree. And he grabs it inside of his coat and he grabs a book of matches and he, he lights the match and he lights that and he grabs a stick and he, and he puts the stick on top of that little fire. This is on top of the snow and walks off. And I'm like, Holy crap. Like, okay, well, I know this, that fire is not going out. Right. And he put it right next to a tree that was leaning, big tree. And I'm thinking, literally thinking to myself, okay, first of all, remember like waist deep snow, I've got to get wood to keep this fire alive because I guarantee you he's not going to be back here for hours. There's just no way. So he's going back to get the snowmobile. He's going back You're to at the, the bottom of a, of a ravine, like a mile below the snowmobile, probably 30 miles from your camp in the middle of Siberia. I would say, by the, I would say we're probably a mile and a half 
mile and a quarter to mile and a half on the snow machine, but you have to go back down the mountain and back up the mountain all the way to get there in say 25 degrees and and there's clouds forming. So this is not the bottom of the ravine. This is bottom yeah. and up. You're shooting. Yes. You, so when you shot it, you shot across the ravine. Correct. So should, exactly. doubling your distance across. And we had to cross <laughs> the ravine. It, and I'm like, I don't know how he's going to get the snow machine over here. Right. I mean, how good a physical shape was this guy in? Is this guy like, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, is he like a monster. <laughs> if I was to say, you know, this is a real Russian bear hunter. That should be like self-explanatory. He was a bad dude. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He wasn't very big. But there's a picture too I have of it had to have been like 30 degrees one day. We we're driving around the snow machine, and I looked at his face is just like beet red, like how cold it was, and he didn't have any gloves on. I'm like, how do you even do that? Like he didn't have his gloves on driving the snow machine. It's like freezing. I mean, you know. So anyway, he's going, he's he leaves, and uh I for the next six hours, I don't sit down. I get, I'm just trying to collect, no saw, no nothing. I mean, I'm trying every ounce of energy I can. I'm finding the biggest branches, trying to get up trees, you know, pull down stuff and like keep the fire. The fire had burned a hole. And I have a picture of this that was about almost four feet deep where the ashes and stuff were going. But I'm like, and the whole time I'm thinking to myself, we had seen bears everywhere, right? And uh, there's more like the first day and you're next to like, okay. So how many pounds do you think this bear was that you got? I, I don't even know. I would say between six and 800. I mean, it's huge. So you're sitting next to potentially 800 pounds of meat in bear country. Yeah. And no gun, no water, no nothing, not nothing. In, and like it, it could start snowing and then I, I mean, I'm in complete survival mode. And so I, I literally had, gone and grabbed the biggest sticks that I had. And I was figuring out if I, I could climb up the one tree that was laying down. I'm like, if he comes, you're coming after me. I've got at least two big clubs and like how I was going to defend myself. And then the other thing is the kid, the, the hide from the bear was there and I pulled it closer to me towards the fire and built a step down into the fire where it burned a hole so that I could get close to the fire and hug and cut and cover myself with the bear hot, right? Freshly so, cut off, right? So this is not yeah, like a covered in blood. This isn't like a blanket. So I'm covered in blood. Yeah. And there's a dead bear, and like there's bears everywhere. The most bears in in any part of the world are in Kamchatka. And uh, so about six hours later, thank goodness, this was maybe I would say noonish for the day. So we were out early, and this was one of the, the this thing was the first bear we saw that day, maybe. And uh, about six hours later, I hear the snow machine and it's on the other side of the mountain. It's right? been six hours. Six hours and no water. And I'm literally trying to time every survival skill. Now I'm slowing heart rate. I'm like, I'm just thinking this is really getting to spot. So I hear him and, he, and sure enough, he comes around the other side of the mountain and comes in and he comes up to me. And he's like, he's all excited. You know, he's, he had food and water and I'm sitting there going, where is it? Like, give me some water, you know, after all that sweated, and, you know, you name it. And anyway, we get back to camp that night. And I said, I asked the interpreter, I said, what was Alexei trying to tell me when he got to the sled? He said he got, he got to the sled and there was a group standing around him. 
And he, he said that they thought that gods had dropped the sled into the mountains. There's, this is what I'm saying. This is like in the Amazon where there's people that we don't like. There are Russian, you know, natives that are live in the woods that they don't even see people. They don't even like, you know, they don't have any. They just still they're wandering around. And so long, like I tell you, going for hours with like we eventually got to meet up with them later and i ended up buying one of the mucklucks a pair of mucklucks their boots off the guy handmade out of seal and and some other stuff and uh so i just had to look this up the indigenous so you you said inuit because it's the the closest alaskan tribe it's the class is it inuit people is it because i mean that's a lot is it because I was just looking it up and it's... Well, and, that may, and if that's not the right term, just the native, like no different than the Alaska Eskimo. Right, right. Well, because, you know, I don't want to like mess it all up because I, you know, I want to be aware with it. But there, there's like 50 groups. I, could, I couldn't possibly pick one out. So you have to look in the Kamchatka, Siberia area of what like the Kamchatkan native... Kamchatkan is uh, uh, Chuchki, Chuch, Chukchi. Yeah, I'm talking full blown wearing the you know caribou coats, wearing fur, and, and, and far was I I literally the, the the thing that was crazy was the guide when we met up with him, we found him, and it, and uh, the interpreter said he'd like to know how much for your mucklucks because they spoke a, a version of Russian, right, right. and. Uh, he gave her that, I don't know, you know, like, what do you, what do you got to trade? And she said, is a, is a lady interpreter. And she said, we're giving 50 bucks. So I've reached in my wallet, it's 50 American dollars. And maybe it was rubles. I don't remember, but it was the equivalent of 50 bucks. And he takes his boots off, no socks on, nothing. Like he's walking around the snow. Just gave you the boots. Handmade boots. He had another, he, had, he did have another pair, but he, and they were amazing. And uh, unfortunately, I lost them in my house fire. Oh, jeez, terrible! And also, about uh, he had a handmade drill that he made out of one piece of wood that had a leather strap, and you pulled it, and it was like a it's correct. Anyway, so um, so we get back and kind of wrapping and wrapping it up with the hunting aspect. We get back. I'm excited, and, and by the way, he's dragging me back. And I have this on film as well. I'm getting drugged back. I got, I'm like taking pictures of this bear riding between my legs on the snow machine. Right. So his head. Did you, you have the bear skull? The meat up the skull. Okay. So the meat was, so you took the fur of the head and that kind of stuff. And he, and he took, he took the meat for the dogs and he also took the paws and the paws is their delicacy. So, and we had the bear paw, fried bear paw. And do they have, is trichinosis a thing up there? Because it's usually related to... Yes, it is. And that's why the humans don't eat that bear meat. The dogs can, but they can eat the paws. And I don't know why, you know. And uh, so we get back and excited. Oh, and and on the way anyway, I've got the video camera going. And the snow machine, the the sled falls off of the the snow machine. Okay. And I'm looking, I'm like, well, he's going to... He just keeps going. And anyway, he was gone. He went at least a mile before he realized I wasn't even behind <laughs> anymore. So I had my video camera going. Well, so I shot my bear, but the snow, the sled came off, and my guy hasn't realized it yet. So I'm hoping he comes back. And 
and uh and he came he came back obviously and got me and and uh so al who broke his ribs uh is like on uh day nine um dick shot a bear uh 10 foot two on day six and al like the uh he couldn't he was it was he was miserable and I brought one pain pill with me that I was like, hey, and I only had one one pain pill that was, you know, I was like, hey, you never know. Because he, he couldn't bring, like, he brought, like, a suitcase. That's it, right? Right, right. Like, There's a ton of stuff. I was like, in case if something did happen, and I just happened to have it. And there, he had one pain pill, and we had some vodka and whatever else, and just he didn't move for six days. Oh, my gosh. Hey, I see him getting, he's in the morning, he's getting up, and he's trying to get his clothes on. I'm like, Al, what are you doing? He's like, well, you can't kill him in camp. I'm like, are you serious? And and uh, so he goes and lays down in the sled, and they he drives around for a little bit. Well, Dick, the other guy, the other guy I was with, is with his guy. He's going out to shoot a second bear. So <laughs> Dick is so you can pay another five or ten grand, you can go kill two. And I'm like, here, oh God, my gosh, he's out looking, and he comes hauling back. You can hear them screaming. He's going, ow, ow, ow. And Dick comes back to the camp. He goes, there is a 10-foot bear who jumped up in a tree right down here from camp. Get in the sled, and they get Al in the sled, and they get him down there, pull right up 100 yards. And the bear's not going to bear. Those big brown bears don't typically climb, but they spooked him, and he's up in the tree. Right. He's, he's not very high. He's like 10 feet up in the tree. And they get his gun out and puts it on him, and Al shoots him in the foot. And bear literally like and didn't and they're like oh gosh chamber again shoots him right the number fourteen all time in Russia what ten foot ten foot six I think ten and this four. is this is the old boy that like broke oh, his God. ribs hobbling around he camp doesn't think he's gonna hunt and he shoots the number fourteen all time oh my gosh and so. I guess, I mean, I could go on, but it's, it's, uh, you know, getting out was just as crazy as getting in. Did you have to take the chopper out with the bear? And oh yeah, this just all sounds terrifying. Like it's like, you know, it's like I said, um, if somebody asked me if I'd do it again, the answer is probably yes. I'd probably want to do it again. Um, would I encourage someone else to go do it? No. I'm like, I, I just, if, I would if, never put my reputation on the line for something like that. Yeah. Like it, you know, and what's crazy is, you know, uh, Ronnie Richardson, our CEO, when I when I met Ronnie, uh, the first question he asked me, he said, I heard you like to hunt. And I said, I said, yeah, I do. And he said, what do you like to do? So I went to Russia. I, I told him, I said, I went to Russia, one of the craziest one, and went to uh, uh, shot a brown bear over there. He said, where at Kamchatka? I said, yeah. How would you know that? He said, I've been there 12 times. <laughs> what? So that Ronnie and I hit it off. I'm like, no way. Stayed at the same hotel, knows the casino, knows everything. He like Ronnie has been there 12 times. So pretty amazing. So yeah. I uh which is why next up is Ronnie's stories, right? Oh yeah. Then Ronnie's got some great, I mean, Ronnie's Ronnie has hunted way more than I have. But um yeah, so that's that's Russian, you know, bear hunting. I got back to uh, people always ask, well, how did you get him home? We had these dry bags. And so they boiled the skull and then they wrapped the um, cape. They didn't really do anything to the cape. 
they wrapped it around the skull and stuffed it in one of the dry bags and checked it through like luggage. And you're just going to hope it doesn't go bad by the time you get home. Got to the uh, back to the States and um, they opened it up and they looked at to ensure it was there. And uh, we had to have your, what do they call them? Citus, CITES permits or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another cool thing that was uh, crazy that you just uh, didn't even know existed, but we were going down on the flight from Moscow to Petropavlos. There was this famous American hunter guy who I did not know. He's, in, he's, he's like on a channel that I don't really watch. Um, but he was going over to uh, Petropavlos to shoot a Capra Kelly. And a Capra Kelly is a mix between a pheasant and a turkey. Well, we got to see those in the wild. One day we're, we're on the snow machine and you hear this. It sounded like a pheasant, but it was a much deeper thing. And he looks and it's trying to fly like a pheasant, but it's as big as a turkey. And they were black and, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy animals. And, it's like a Harry Potter land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the the vastness of Russia, right? And to sit here and go, why why do they have so much money? It's because they have so much border and they've got all this oil and gas and they've got all of these amazing minerals. And, uh, you know, and, and I'd say that the last cool, cool thing, the most memorable thing, just in regards to the people that has to do with land, which I think is kind of interesting, is... You, Nobody owns anything, right? So that's where it gets crazy. Like, so you in Moscow, the very first thing I saw were these gigantic compounds and they look like dormitories. Remember, there's like 14, 15 million people, something like that in Moscow, 12, somewhere in there, a lot. And you, you, you're looking and it looked like all the buildings were on fire. There was smoke coming out of the windows. And I asked the interpreter, I was like, why do they all look like they're on fire? And, and she said, oh, the government turned the electricity off. And so you're like, what? <laughs> so when it gets winter. Busy, they turn it off. And so you're just, you're responsible for staying warm yourself. So they had these aluminum foil kind of uh, chimneys coming out of each one of their apartments on this dormitory. And this dormitory probably had a thousand plus people that lived in it. And they're all trying to stay warm inside, you know, their, their building. So what the government did at some point, I was really deep in understanding because I think it's really something that could be utilized here in the United States in some capacity is you didn't own anything, but they gave everybody a quarter acre of land. And on that quarter of acre land is where you grew your vegetables and where you could have animals, you know, you could raise chickens. And so you would go to your, and they call them duchess, I think is how you say it. And you go to your quarter acre of land and that's where you can grow your, your food. And like, and that's with every single citizen in, in Russia. So, you know, they have all these potato farms. It doesn't look anything like this because it's all run by the government. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, I think the, the moral of the story is people need to get out of the country if they have, you know, it's like, yeah, I think about the younger generations too, just going, you, you have any question, like you're in the greatest country on the face of the planet, like, so wonderful experience and, you know, yeah, Russian bear hunt. <laughs> Aaron Graham's Siberian bear hunt. <laughs> and it's always great talking to you. I appreciate you telling this story. This is awesome. Well, thanks for letting me tell it. I enjoy it. This concludes episode number 43 for the National Land Realty Podcast, talking with Aaron Graham about the Siberian bear hunting trip of a lifetime. 
You can hear more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.